You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I mentioned if you were at 9 o'clock, C.S. Lewis, um, who is an apologist. Today I'm going to talk about apologetics and evangelism. Um, C.S. Lewis, probably the most important evangelist of the 20th century, uh, one of the most, or apologists, one of the most influential apologists in my own life. He wrote a a poem called uh, The Apologist's Evening Prayer. I'm going to read that to start for our prayer. Let's pray. From all my lame defeats and oh much more, from all the victories that I seem to score, from cleverness shot forth on thy behalf, at which while angels weep, the audience laugh, from all my proofs of thy divinity, thou wouldst give no sign, deliver me. Thoughts are but coins, let me not trust instead of thee, their thin worn image of thy head. From all my thoughts, even from my thoughts of thee, O thou fair silence, fall and set me free. Lord of the narrow gate and the needle's eye, take from me all my trumpery, lest I die. Amen. I'm going to pass out um, a a clipboard uh, because some of you have, I did a class after Christmas called uh, Doing Apologetics and Evangelism, the same title on the incarnation and the significance of Christ's incarnation for uh, making a defense of the faith. And today I'm talking about uh, the resurrection, uh, given that we're in the season of Easter still before Thursday. We just barely made it in. Um, but uh, Andrew's out today, so this was an opportunity for me to, to bring it in here to you, to the dean's class. In August, I'm going to teach a four-week series, probably not in this space, probably in one of the other spaces like the chapter room, I don't know yet, uh, on, on doing apologetics and evangelism, a little bit more robust take. But today I'm just focusing on the resurrection. If you, I've done this before in those classes, if you might be interested in the class I'll be teaching or similar opportunities to learn about being trained for evangelism and apologetics, like seriously, if you're interested, if you're not, no sweat, just pass it on. Uh, Please just put clearly your name and email address. Not quite sure if this ballpoint pen is going to last, but uh, we'll start with that. If you have one that you're willing to sacrifice along the way, I appreciate it. Um, And so, um, I want to talk to you about my interest in apologetics. If you don't know what that means, maybe you've heard it before. It simply means giving a reasonable defense of the faith. And I'm sorry that I'm going to sort of read my lecture notes, uh, only for about half the class, maybe not even that. We'll look at some scripture together. But um, I was going through what I wanted to say, and I just feel like I need to give it a good... um, a good treatment here. And so this is not my usual style, if you're familiar with me, to kind of read something at you. But uh, I'm going to sort of, I'll try to remain as above the text as I can, but I'm going to read through this a little bit. Um, and so first of all, I'm more interested in evangelism. I should say that. that. That apologetics I see as it ought to be, properly speaking, and most people wouldn't say this, I see apologetics as an aspect of evangelism, um, which is bringing uh, people to faith through the patient and prayerful proclamation of the gospel, okay? Um, and apolo- apologetics, though, is a, a giving of reason for our faith. Um, you see this as biblical, actually. You see this most poignantly in Peter's first epistle in chapter 3 at the 15th 
and 16th verse as well, but this is verse 15, where he talks about giving a, a defense, and the word there in the Greek is apologion, ap- apologetics, you see? Not, not like I apologize in the English, that's confusing. That's not, we're not like, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, I'm sorry to have offended you. That's not what we're talking about. It's based on this word from the Greek, apology, which meant a defense, a reasonable defense. And hear what Peter says in, uh, and by the way, in the context of First Peter, this, the community he's writing to are really under pressure by pe- Greco-Roman pagan society. And so this is what he says to them. In your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense, and that's the word, defense, to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. I'm so glad that he put that line there, to do it with gentleness and respect. And hopefully you heard through the C.S. Lewis prayer that I read to you that C.S. Lewis is saying, deliver me from any time I engaged in apologetics and I was a selfish, conceited person, basically, and was looking to like kind of win the fight. That's not what we're after here. And often people are against apologetics because they think that it's merely a debate. I don't care about debates. I care about hearts being one for Jesus Christ. If that includes me losing debates on the way, great. But <clears throat> I'm really not interested in debates, and I don't think Peter was either. He's interested in something altogether more important, which is bringing a people to faith. And sometimes they ask for a reason for the hope that's in you, and, and be prepared, he says, to give that reason. And you'll be guided by the Holy Spirit, by the way, uh, when you do it as well, though it helps to sort of have folks like me help you get there. Um, and so as such, apologetics is the intellectual side of evangelism, the intellectual side of evangelism. Ultimately, coming to faith, or you could call it repentance, is a heart operation. Finally, coming to faith and, and true repentance is a heart operation. As Ashley Knoll, who's been around here before, and you famously know the quote, talks about the heart leading the mind, not the other way around. People often think it's the other way around. Even for, for real academic types, the heart does lead the mind. As Ashley Knoll said in exclaiming, explaining uh, Thomas Cranmer's uh, theology of the prayer book, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And that can be a bad thing, and it could be a good thing. Um, <clears throat> so evangelism, at the end of the day, has to be a heart operation. And this is why when uh, preaching and sharing the gospel I, I've been saying for several years now that I go for the jugular. Uh, the better way, if you're a doctor, is to say you go for the carotid artery because that's actually where the oxygen goes from the heart to the mind, and the jugular is where the deoxygenated blood goes. But it sounds better. I go for the jugular or the carotid artery because it's between the heart and the mind. You go, and I, it sounds more visceral that when proclaiming the gospel, we ought to go for the jugular. And uh, I find that uh, one of the reasons uh, people do not do evangelism is that they lack uh, confidence, that people often don't engage in uh, evangelism uh, because they lack confidence for, for three primary reasons, okay? This is what I've seen. There are probably others, but three reasons that I've seen. And number one is just a sort of plain lack of experience and exposure. <clears throat> that could be really true in a place like the South, by the way, where societally people have assumed that most others are Christian, at least nominally, that so many of us just lack the experience or the exposure to to participating in evangelism. And the only way to improve this is to take risks and to sort of brace yourself for awkward failures and and blunders. Um, it's It's not an easy thing. It requires 
patience and perseverance. The, sac the second reason that I see that people don't engage regularly in any sort of evangelism is a lack of faith in God to be at work in others' lives and through us. Um, th that uh, thinking that it's the other way around, that it depends on my own sort of ability to muster up the ability to, to do evangelism. But we often don't engage in evangelism because we're just, our, our faith isn't in it, that God will be at work in the person and us and in God's word, uh, both proclaimed and in scripture. Just, for example, hear uh, what Isaiah said, uh, what God says in Isaiah's 55th chapter, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose it, purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Um, so we should have, uh, we, we need to sort of, most of us just need to gain the experience, and it's helpful when gaining the experience to trust that it doesn't depend on our own strength, but to have faith that God, can, that God is and can be at work in the life of the people we're talking with, even though it might not look that way. Um, I could say from my own life that there were probably times when most people didn't think that God could be at work in my life. In retrospect, he was. It's clear as day to me. That's my son, by the way. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, whatever. Uh, um, so, <laughs> yeah, well, um, we're trying. Um, so uh, that God can be at work in our lives, the life of the other people in, in his word, both in scripture and when we're proclaiming God's word. And here's the third final reason why I see that people don't engage uh, in, um, in evangelism. And this is really my main point for today because I want to talk about the resurrection. Um, <clears throat> is that many people are concerned about the difficult questions that uh, are apologetic in nature that folks might raise for them, and maybe you've encountered this, and there are all manner of different questions that people can raise about our society, um, philosophically, you know, uh, big ones have to do with, you know, how could suffering exist in a world where there is a, you know, all good, uh, all powerful God, or, you know, the exclusive claims of Christianity, and, um, you know, uh, sort of philosophical case for God being a uh, creator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've, heard, you've probably heard some smattering of those different types of questions that people might raise, or even just things about how Christians can be um, such jerks and, and whatnot. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that it's a mistake to fall too far into that trap of where, the people, where people often bait you in those directions. What I'm going to say in a little bit is that ultimately what we want to do is lead anybody from that point in as few steps as possible to grappling with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it might take five years, it might take five minutes. But to get to, from the point where they're maybe raising questions about the problem of suffering and not brushing it under the rug, to acknowledge it, maybe address it, to, begin, to get to there as, a few, as, as short a time as possible, because life is short, to grappling with the, resurrection, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that, and that might be difficult, but... Uh, so there are several things that, uh, that I want to say about our lack of confidence, faith, and expertise that I've mentioned is that we don't need to be uh, experts in apologetics to do apologetics, okay? That we can engage apologetically with other people without being uh, an expert. Um, you know, glean from the learning that I've done and I'm trying to do to just to have a, a, at least a, a minimal exposure to these things, and, and that can be helpful for you. 
Um, you don't need to go to seminary to answer some of these concerns. One of the best things you can do is to, is to get acquainted with some very basic apologetic resources that you can either refer to for yourself or point other people to. Even if you haven't fully read them before, if you know that they're from trustworthy sources and people you know and trust have read them and like them, I'm going to give you some titles later, uh, and know the gist of those works or videos or books or whatever or audio recordings of people speaking, to point people with specific questions to those resources, to be acquainted with them, and not have to feel like you know everything that those experts know. That can be one of the most helpful things that you can do apologetically. Or to say, you know what, I'm with you about that question about you know, how could suffering exist in a, in a world where, with an all, uh, you know, a, a omnibenevolent God. I just am not able to answer it very well right now. Let me get back to you. But I know that there's a good answer out there, and I know where to find it. I'd love to even read that stuff with you. Do you see what I'm saying? Versus what we sort of like trip over ourselves and give a, a stupid answer. <laughs> that can be unhelpful. Um, and here's the other thing is that we don't need to do heavy apologetics with most people. Um, but we ought to be prepared to deal with the genuine intellectual hurdles that people raise. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a disservice to Christianity to deal with concerns on purely spiritual grounds. Um, like when someone raises a really rough question about, you know, they're, often when people are dealing with pain in the world and that's the thing, that's the hurdle for them, I'm just going to keep going back to that one, what we call the problem of pain. Um, how could God exist in this painful world? Usually it's because they've, they've, seen, they've read the news or their mom's dying of cancer, or their spouse just died of cancer, or something like that. And so it's a disservice to brush that under the rug and just say, well, I know, Jesus, I know that Christianity is true because I feel it in my heart. That person is probably never going to want to talk to you again about the faith because you've ignored uh, something that's real and actually Christianity has an answer for. Uh, and it's not the one that we're often giving. And so it can be sort of insincere to brush their uh, real concerns uh, under the, the, the rug uh, that are apologetic in nature. And by the way, a part of my coming to faith involved several years, several years, several years of me reading uh, historical and ph philosophical material explaining the apologetic side of Christianity. Anything from C.S. Lewis to Lee Strobel. And uh, actually, this stuff's good. Um, I just, when I read it, I was like, oh, this stuff just smacks of uh, megachurch Christianity. And it kind of does culturally, but it's actually Lee Strobel stuff. It can be good material. And it was helpful along my walk. He, he addresses some of these concerns and C.S. Lewis at a more sort of academic side of things and talking to a few Christians who were willing to engage with my concerns but these things did not ultimately bring me to converting faith of repentance of life and wanting to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior because even these things aren't going to always necessarily bring someone to faith because even the devil and demons know that our God exists. The, lack, the, the, the problem is the lack of trust in his uh, work of salvation for them. And uh, so we can bring someone along intellectually to, to believe in a sort of deistic or theistic God without Jesus. It is a pathway to hell um, without getting them ultimately to Jesus Christ. 
Um, but like I said, there are real concerns that, uh, that um, for me that had to be addressed before I was finally convinced at a heart level that I was a sinner uh, in need of a Savior. And so uh, there's the final thing I want to say about our, our sort of lack of confidence, our lack of faith, and our lack of expertise. And this is what I mentioned earlier as our topic um, today is ultimately, uh, we're concer- because we're ultimately concerned with evangelizing and, and not uh, just engaging in or winning intellectual debates, we want to as quickly as possible get people to grapple with the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Many people start apologetically trying to convince others of a rational case for just God, you know, capital G-O-D, may or may not have anything to do with Jesus, that that's often the starting point. You know, the God of, say, Genesis chapter 1, which, which I believe is our, our God and Savior, but just stripped of the Christian identity. Do you see what I'm saying? Or just that, uh, you know, the philosophical idea that there might be a first mover, a big banger, or something like that. Um, uh, that's where people often think they ought to start, uh, and they spend a lot of time with that or the problem of evil or suffering, giving a sort of a, a reason why pain might exist in the world is what we call a theodicy. People might spend a lot of time hovering there. But as I said, I think this is a mistake. It's okay to briefly address these things, to not ignore them. You don't want to say like, yeah, yeah, I hear you, but let me talk about the resurrection, okay? You want to get there, you have to address those things, but ultimately we want to really uh, grapple with the resurrection. Um, um, uh, People must come to grips with Jesus Christ being who he said he was. And the resurrection solidifies this for us. The truth of the resurrection is the linchpin. Um, Here's a line I mentioned, Lee Strobel. If you don't know, he famously, he was a convert like me, a journalist. I used to be involved with journalism, like me, but he actually had a job. Um, I just taught. (laughs) I mean, he was a, he was a, where was it? Somewhere in the Midwest, I think, a journalist, Chicago journalist. And, uh, living a very kind of secular, atheistic life in the late 70s, early 80s, and, and came to faith. And here's the, 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 this movie just came out a couple years. It's really bad, honestly. His biography movie, The Case for Christ, it's just, it just film-wise, it's pretty bad. But there's a great line in it. I'm just saying that because it's just a real hard story to tell in a gripping movie. It just doesn't, it doesn't the genre doesn't work, okay? The, the books that he wrote are better. Um, there's the Case for Christ movie where it's telling the story, and one of his fellow journalists in his office at the Chicago Tribune, is that where it was, David, who's a Christian, says to him, the Christian, and they're not getting along, he kind of hates, they kind of hate each other's guts, or he hates the Christian's guts, the other guy's sort of like apathetic about him, but he says, he says, he sees that Lee Strobel's grappling with this, and he says to him, and this is great. This is the best line of the movie. The, the movie's only worth watching for this line. Um, unless you want to do two years of seminary, I'd say go straight for the jugular. <laughs> the entire Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. If it didn't happen, it's a house of cards. He's reduced to a misunderstood rabbi at best. At worst, he's a lunatic who was martyred. That's true. That's very true. Um, uh, that was a good recommendation that he made for Lee Strobel. And a lot of good's been done because of that recommendation, if it were true. Hopefully it wasn't fictionalized. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then everything else unfolds from there. Let me say that again. 
if Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead in the way that we understand it in the creeds, what we think the Gospels are bearing witness to and some other places in the New Testament, then all those other apologetic questions sort of unfold from there. It makes it easier to answer um, those, uh, uh, those other uh, questions. I've lost my place. I want to say something about that. Um, because you have to believe he was who he said he was, and you have to believe all that he said, which includes talking about people like Noah and Jonah. You know, like, don't start with, let's make a case for the flood. <laughs> That's tough. There's very little archaeological evidence. But if you think that Jesus Christ was God incarnate and rose from the dead, and he believed that the flood happened, and that Jonah actually was in the belly of a whale... Well, heck, until you raise from the dead, I'm not going to believe a word you say. But this guy did, and he took it seriously. And so for me, problem solved. You know, I mean, like, I don't have to do a ton of work. I can actually believe that what he said about, you know, Jonah being, uh, what did he say? He, connected, he connects Jonah to his resurrection, actually, and plenty of other things from the Old Testament. Um, see, see what I'm saying? That all those other apologetic questions therefore become a sort of footnote to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. What else do I want to say before I look at some scripture with you? Um, so today, I want to, what I want to do is I want to grapple with scripture, scripture's case for res- the resurrection. And I want to note that this is not necessarily the best place to kind of begin with a non-believer who doesn't trust in the Bible. But for Christians, we ought to be well acquainted with it uh, before we kind of engage with other things. We at least ought to know what Scripture is saying about the resurrection. And eventually, we do want to get around to having those who are evangelizing handle Scripture. It might not be the first thing that we do with folks, but eventually, for someone to come to faith and trust these things, they've got to, they've got to engage with Scripture at some level. Um, and, and to allow God to speak to them uh, through his word. Um, and so the first thing to say about the resurrection, and I won't spend a lot of time here, is you have to be convinced that Jesus Christ actually died on the cross, that he actually existed. And most historians, except for even secular historians, will tell you that only a few obscure, weird academics think that Jesus Christ never existed. Most everybody historically believes that Jesus Christ existed, and most people historically believe that Jesus Christ died a death. Um, and there's a lot of debate about the cross, though, whether or not he, he died on the cross or not. And there are these weird theories about, like, like one of them involves Martians swooping down and getting the people. Some people have put this out as a hypothetical. I, I find that harder to believe than him being killed by Romans, actually. Um, and so, this is the only non-biblical um, resource I'm going to hand out to you. This is an article that was published by the American Journal of Medicine, the, what is it called, JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association. Anybody who's a doctor can tell you. Um, where some folks published a study demonstrating, it's kind of hard to look at, but um, it's like watching the Passion, the, what is it, the Passion of Christ, the Mel Gibson movie. To read this article is a lot like that. It, it presents um, scientific medical terms by a doctor and uh, two theologians, and this was published in a major secular academic journal in the 1980s, demonstrating, based on what Scripture tells us, that Jesus Christ most certainly died on the cross. 
and the final thing, um, uh, because I want to look at this passage with you. By the way, there might not be enough for you, so if you're with a spouse, maybe share. Uh, we'll pass this around. Well, hey, whatever. Um, these are some scripture passages. I mean, if you have a Bible, you can um, you can just open it. But um, this is uh, I want to look at John uh, chapter 19, starting at the 31st verse, which is at the top of the second handout that's going around. And this just coincidentally is referenced to, I think, in our passage today that I'm preaching on. Um, but John in his gospel uh, talks about the sort of the confirmation of Christ's death. And listen to the language that he uses to, to describe this. This is important for John. To, uh, to, he's, kind of, he's doing something sort of apologetic here. He's saying, I was an eyewitness to something that demonstrates that Jesus Christ actually died on the cross. And so you can see that even this point of whether or not Jesus actually died um, was, was uh, sort of being debated as early as right after the fact. And so here's from John chapter 19. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first. Remember the two other thieves being crucified beside him? They broke his legs and of the other who had been crucified with him. And when uh, they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And uh, so he's referring to himself, John is here. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. So a couple things going on here. When they're on the cross, in order to, and this is explained in that journal article I just passed out to you, in order to breathe, they had to, I mean, it's a terrible thing. I mean, the, the maniacal thought that went into the, the, down to the science almost of the crucifixion is really crazy. In order to breathe, they had a little foot sort of pedestal, and they're, they're, they're hung up with their knees bent. You're collapsed in on your lungs, and so you can't breathe this way. You have to push up on your legs to expand your chest to breathe. And you've just been whipped on your back, and so your back, which is cut all open, your whole backside, including your legs, is scraping against the wood of the cross as you're doing that. Every time you, I mean, you imagine you're probably only going to want to take a breath when you really have to. And so in order to maintain survival on the cross, you're in this constant process like this. That's what's happening on the cross. Most people uh, died much later than Jesus did. Jesus dies after three hours, which means that his torture beforehand was probably really, 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 really bad. I mean, the whipping and all that, the beating, the flogging, and marching him around. And so sometimes they're taking too long to die, and they kind of want to move on with life. What they would do is they would simply break their legs because they can no longer breathe. They can't lift themselves up, so they suffocate to death. Well, they see Jesus and see that he looks like he's already died. He's not even breathing anymore. So to confirm it, they take a spear, and they put it through his side, and it punctures not only his heart, but uh, Dr. Sharp, it's a pericardial sac. Is that right? plural sacs next to the heart, which has some clear liquid that looks like water. 
And so the, both the clear liquid and the blood come out of his side, confirming that he's died because they've punctured his heart because the sack is behind the heart. Um, and, and John goes at pains to, to demonstrate this, that he witnessed this. He, that's, a, that's a main point of one of the things that he says. So you have to just come, before you talk about the resurrection, you have to be conv- convinced that Jesus actually died on the cross. Uh, and so here you have a journal article and some scripture that deals with it. And I'm going to just sort of say, there's more that we can say about it, but that's, that's, that's plenty for me right now. So let's assume that he's died on the cross. And um, some folks are allowed by Pilate because they don't want to, it's about to be the Sabbath starting at sunset. They don't want to leave any Jewish bodies, including the other thieves on the cross, on the, on the crosses. So they take them down and, and bury them uh, in a tomb uh, behind a rock because as the bodies are decomposing, they smell really, really bad. Uh, and so they put them inside of a, a sort of a tomb with a large rock to cover the hole that would require, I mean, plenty of men to, to move, plenty of manpower to move this thing. And so now he's, uh, he's in the, the tomb, and somehow, uh, a couple days later, he has, once the tomb is opened uh, by some uh, angelic intervention, uh, he's not in there anymore. They don't open the tomb to let him out. When the tomb is opened, he's just not there. Now, how did this happen when it's guarded by Roman soldiers who, at pain of death, had to guard the tomb? If this happened, they would be uh, probably killed for their negligence. And then um, the, uh, the, the Jewish authorities didn't want this to happen either because if rumors spread that Jesus actually rose from the dead in the way that he said he would, then, as they knew, it would confirm the things that he said. Even if it weren't true, Rumors would spread that would be very unhelpful for them. So they wanted the tomb to remain closed. So who opened the tomb and why? And was Jesus still in there or not? And our, you know, creedal faith says, well, the tomb opened and he wasn't there anymore. And he appeared elsewhere and he, in bodily form, uh, risen from the dead. Because he actually did die and this was confirmed through the brutal torture and execution that he endured and uh, on Friday, and then by Sunday, there he was. How did this happen? Uh, and if this happened, it means that God was at work in it, uh, and that Jesus is confirming. I mean, he said that this would happen, and it did. And so everything that he taught uh, must uh, be affirmed in that. And so here's the, here's the, um, the, the text that I mainly want to look at. Um, we've got 10 minutes how do I want to do this? I want to read this, and I want to engage with you a little bit. We've only got 10 minutes. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the, um, this is the sort of the main, this is the real deal right here. This is the one that we really want to look at. What Paul's saying about the resurrection is super-duper helpful. Uh, he says, and uh, there are some people who seem to be denying the idea of resurrection in general the resurrection of the dead in general. And this is his answer about that. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, so that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which is meaning they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I, I am. What I am. It's like Popeye, right? Uh, isn't that what Popeye says? Um, uh, and uh, I never saw that before. Uh, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Uh, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So that's a general resurrection. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and our faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it, uh, if it is true that, he, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have already died uh, in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Um, This is a very good treatment theologically and just rationally, almost apologetically, of what we're talking about here. I want to give you some time to talk back, but I just want to point out a few things. That he says that this is of first importance, the narrative about the death and resurrection, and those to whom Jesus appeared. We're not talking just to John. We're not talking just to one person. He's saying uh, to the 12 and to 500 other people and still more. So 500-something people that uh, in the 40 days that he, after his death, between his resurrection and his ascension, he appeared as risen from the dead to 500 witnesses. And he's basically saying, some of them are still alive. If you want to test this, why don't you go talk to them? Are there any lawyers in the room? Are there any lawyers in the room? How would you love to have 500-something witnesses in a case? Has that ever happened before? I mean, just from a jurisprudence standpoint, what Paul's saying is really important. Um, that we have eyewitnesses. He's not just me and not just his best friends, but even his best friends died for the thing that they're bearing witness to. Who's going to die for a lie and maintain it? But all these other people, too, and some of them are still alive. Why don't you go talk to them? Some of you even know them, and they've said this, too, and you're not believing it. How many people is it going to take for you to believe that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead? 600? 5,000? A million? I mean, 500 some odd people is pretty good. And they're maintaining the same pretty much narrative about what happened. So that's what Paul's saying here. And then he goes on to say, and look, if none of this is true, what I'm talking about here is, is vanity. It's futile. Why would I even care? Why would I, Paul, even be caring about this? If Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, um, let's go out to brunch. You know, I mean, when does Trattoria open? Like, why are you wasting your time here? Is what Paul's saying, okay? 
So that's, that's the resurrection. It's all that I can say in 35 minutes. We've got five minutes. I'm sorry to, to grapple with this a little bit. I'd love to entertain a, a few thoughts. Yeah. I, I just wanted to correct the record that uh, the pericardial sac is around the heart and okay. the pleural sac is around the lungs. So explain that. Well, the, the lungs are really easy to get to through the ribs. So when they say side, I tend to think lateral which would be probably in the pleural sac, which I understand is where the fluid accumulates. And so that would, all, make, that would be... Well, not necessarily when you die. It depends on what your cause of death is. But it also could be... It could also get to the heart that direction. So it could have right. been... The, so right. I, don't, I think it's kind of getting hung up on knowing everything. I mean, you know, that's not the point. I mean, he was dead. Right. But the other thing in this article you gave... I remember when this article came out, it was, it was very, very controversial. Got a yeah, lot of that. attention, you yeah. know, and... It's kind of led, uh, JAMA went hardcore left after that. I've actually canceled my subscription. But <laughs> at any rate, uh, in there they talk about this, this deal about where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, sweating also, the blood. And so I want to ask you about this because I've seen some stressful situations. I've seen people die. And I've never seen anything that approached anything like that. My contention is, or misinterpreting the original Greek, is it really... If I understand the scripture, it says he sweated like blood. And you know how when you have a cut on your hand or something, these silent drops will just kind of fall. And I've always thought that maybe he was just sweating, and that was like blood. And I think that when you go out on a limb and say it was this incredibly rare thing, you start to get back into the belly of the whale and the, and the right. flood before you've ever gotten to the evangelism. Can you comment on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, scientifically, I don't know. But even that says that it's, it's, it's possible. I guess there are two different conditions where this is possible. Yeah, I, or... I had a workmate that had leukemia, and when we went to Chicago in a plane at high altitude, he started sweating blood. And, no kidding. And his gums started bleeding. So... This is the, this, the important point theologically, though, is the, the cross is not merely the cross. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's not just the wooden cross and what happened there for those three hours. But Christ's passion is the things that led up to it. Uh, all that suffering, which was not just bodily, but uh, uh, emotional and spiritual, and bearing the, the full weight, you know, cast all your anxieties on him and his separation from God the Father being the, um, the most um, stressful thing. I mean, just imagine being separated from, you know, somebody you love very well that you've known for part of your life, a child or a spouse or something, through death or divorce or estrangement and how much stress that has on you. Imagine if you are the word of God who's been with God the Father since all eternity and you participated in creating the universe with him and making mankind and being involved in human history. And then on this particular week, 2,000 years ago, for a period of time, you were separated. That was the, that's the stress of taking on um, that hellish stress on our behalf. And so maybe it was enough just like your, your pal with leukemia to, to cause. So I don't know, but you know. Yeah, but it's, it, it's part of the lead-up to the resurrection of what happened, that what his death means, and that he actually died. And it was a, um, it was a bloody mess. <laughs> There's a very good movie uh, came out within the last year. It's called Risen, R-I-S-E-N, and it deals and talks exactly about what you're yeah, talking about Risen. today. Risen, and it's a, all the facts are totally, in my opinion, correct biblically 
and it's based on a Roman soldier's uh, witnessing of the whole scene and situation and trying to prove that he didn't rise from the dead, and we'll leave it there, but it's very worth seeing if you're a Christian. Okay. I, if you're not a Christian. Yeah, so I have, that's interesting. Mainstream movie, Risen, out in the theaters and everything. There's been this whole slew of interesting biblical stuff come out in the last few years. The, by the way, the next passage down there, which we don't have time to read, the Matthew's resurrection account. Um, I can't believe people are calling me right now. Um, uh, it was Miriam texting me. Um, I disagree with what you're saying. Um, the Matthew account here, uh, we don't have time to grapple with it, but it's interesting to see both the Roman interest and the Jewish interest in that passage for covering up the details of the resurrection. Um, uh, and that Matthew describes this. So one more question, yeah. Um, I don't know whether it's a question as much as um, I've always uh, considered after the resurrection what the apostles <laughs> did and they died right. for Jesus Christ. I think if I had not seen him and just he was a wonderful rabbi, a teacher, I might have at one point said, you know, maybe he really didn't. Yeah. Rise from, and for these men to die yeah. for their Lord, to me, is the confirmation of sight and feel and knowing that he did rise. Yeah, oh man, that's a really good point. Apologetically, it's an important point to have in your sort of tool bag. I don't want to say arsenal, because remember, we're not engaging in a fight, but I mean... How many people do you know are willing to die for a lie and maintain it their life? And, and not only that, but stake like their whole vocation on that lie and, uh, and the narrative being similar enough to, to hold water. Uh, that's, a, that's one of the several different points that are made that are related to the resurrection. That, um, if these guys were making it up, why would they go even as far as dying for their lie? Um, and uh, it, it being one that's um, sort of pretty countercultural, you know. Um, so, yeah, there's more, obviously, that we can say. I invite you, uh, if that, uh, can I get that clipboard, if anybody has it, it's going around somewhere. Uh, and I invite you to consider uh, coming to, and I'll email everybody a reminder, hey, by the way, I'm doing the apologetics thing again. It'll be, we'll, we'll deal with kind of things like that, where, you know, these sort of uh, questions about why would they die, et cetera. We'll probably hit on the resurrection again because I think it's the most important point. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, um, all that we've discussed uh, and the people that we're either engaging with in our lives or imagining, um, have uh, mercy upon us that we might, through your grace, lovingly give an account for the hope that we have uh, with gentleness and respect so that uh, more and more people might come to learn to love and trust in you. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.